Kathy Park's father, Paul, lived at the home. He died in April. She would learn three weeks after his death that he contracted the virus. Kathy, good of you to join us uh, in this time. I know it's very difficult. Um, it's hard not to take that personally, that, that you were essentially um, robbed of information. It is hard, yes. I, I was very involved in my father's life. We were very close um, and very involved in his, in his medical status as well. So to go from that to no information at all, it was a very difficult thing. Leading up to this, um, you know, your father obviously lived there, uh, needed the facility, and, and you relied on that facility to provide that care. Um, how was his health? How did you feel his treatment was? Um, it, so his health was precarious, and that's why he was in there. Uh, mentally, he was actually very good, very communicative. Um, he was able to express himself very well. He just had mobility issues. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, dealing with a few different medical issues that ended him up in long-term care. Um, so in the first two weeks, he was treated really well. It was very welcoming. I was there every day. Uh, he seemed to transition really well. And even the notes indicate that, that I have from the home. He transitioned really well into the home. Mm -hmm. He was coming from a retirement home into there. And, and then I noticed after about two weeks, especially as my visits started to not happen every day, we started to run into issues and there were problems that were ongoing from for the entire five months he was in there. Right. And, you know, it's hard enough when you have to make the decision and put a parent in, in a long-term care home. I mean, it's a, it's a feeling of guilt. It's a feeling of helplessness. I mean, you rely on these facilities, um, you know, to, to do for them what they can't do for themselves and to be kind of your eyes and ears. Um, and, and you allege that, that that did not happen. Yes, and that was a very difficult thing. I think I might have cried for the first week because because I was so involved in, I was his main caretaker for the two and a half years prior to this and involved in his everyday life that you, you have to sort of give up a little bit of the control because you need more help and there's really not much you can do. And so navigating that was difficult. Mm -hmm. and And then I would see things that were happening for the most part, you know, he, he would have moments where he was a little cantankerous, but for the most part, he was a very happy guy and he really liked people and, and enjoyed being in the company of others. And then I started to slowly see, it's funny when you're dealing with the situations that happened one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. and, and you're trying to get over that, that moment, it doesn't seem like it's such a big deal. But when I look back now at his mm -hmm. five, little over five months there and, and I put all the stories together, it was a big deal. There were a lot of things that were lacking in his care and things that I was addressing with the staff and the management. Um, gosh, there would have been at least once a month. And, and of course, you know, when the COVID-19 scare, when it started off initially in, in the early months of, you know, the big um, concern was making sure that seniors and senior care homes were, were shielded and protected. Do you believe and did the facility, um, did you believe that they had everything in control? At the time I did. When they went into uh, lockdown on March 14th, I had to explain to my father why I couldn't be there. I, mm -hmm. I was going at that point between two to five times a week. It depended. It varied on what was going on with him. And so explaining to him the pandemic, coronavirus, mm -hmm. what it meant, he could watch the news and he was, but he didn't quite grasp why that meant I couldn't go in. Right. And, and he was very much wanting to see me all the time. So that was hard because I always felt like if something was going on with him, eyes on were the way that I could see whether he was okay or not. And that was taken away. 
So I couldn't see my father. I could talk to him. But then um, as we went into the part where closer to his death, he wasn't speaking anymore. So I had to fully rely on the information that I was receiving. And the first problem in that is there was no information. There was no contact. There was sometimes 20 phone calls a day that I was trying to get through. And I had no information at all. And that was hard to deal with because I had no choice but to rely on the people that were taking care of him. And I do feel like proper procedures weren't taken and things weren't done properly. I mean, it's not your fault, certainly, but uh, I have to think that you feel a sense of of guilt. I do, very much. I struggle with that aspect of it because uh, I'm very outspoken and always have been, especially in regards to advocating for my father. And I ask myself, should I have been uh, more forceful? Mm -hmm. I'm not typically very forceful when I'm asking for help, but I'm persistent. And in this case, I thought maybe I, maybe I should have really demanded more. I was demanding, but when I'm told you can't come in and you can't see him and he can't go to the hospital and he can't have oxygen mm-hmm. and, you, and he's not talking to me on the phone, I had no choice. I didn't know what else to do. So, but believe- there is a, a level of guilt there. Yeah. And you believe he suffered? I know he did. I know my father. And even hearing him on the phone... Um, at the parts where he could barely speak and then the phone being held to his ear and he can't speak to me at all, but I can hear his labored breathing. I knew he wasn't okay. And I knew he was suffering and I was trying everything that I could to get him to the hospital, to get him help, to find out what was going on. And there was just, I was being told he was okay. You are probably, and you are probably one of many, many who have these kinds of questions with so many seniors being affected by this. And so, of course, you are one of, um, of two that have filed a, a letter hoping for some kind of criminal investigation. How hopeful are you that that will happen? Well, uh, it's actually, uh, I, I'm one of 41. There's 41 signatures on there. Um, there. There are others who probably would have added their name, but we it was done in a timely fashion. Um, and I think what we're hoping for is what, what the the dominant feeling is we would like a public inquiry side parallel to a criminal investigation because when you look at the facts when you look at the incident reports when you hear the stories from the families you realize that if this happened anywhere outside of a long-term care home one-on-one the police would be involved this would be something considered criminal and so we say well you know they're in a uh a long-term care home and there's nurses and stuff. So there's a certain level of expectation we have. And maybe we don't take it as seriously because they're at the end of their lives. But yeah. That doesn't mean that they should not be fed, that they should not be given water, that they should not be helped in their basic everyday needs. That's why they're there. And if that's not being provided, then we need some answers on that. And I think a criminal investigation and a public inquiry will deliver those answers. Well, we'll wait to see what the response is and where this uh, takes, um, takes us. But uh, certainly for you, you've got a very difficult journey of uh, grief ahead of you. And uh, my thoughts to you and your family. And I very much appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for talking about this. It's, it's important. Thank you.